Hi, I'm Amber Cook. Welcome to my podcast, The Dragonfly Connection. Join me every Wednesday for open, honest, and real conversations about change, transformation, and resilience to inspire and empower you. This episode is sponsored by HealingWays.com. Find verified wellness professionals and holistic health resources at HealingWays. That's HealingWaze.com. Just put your heart into it and just keep trying and you'll be absolutely blown away with what you can accomplish. This was one of the last things and one of my most favorite things that my guest Russ McGarry said before we ended our conversation and it really does embody his attitude towards life. I got the sense that he was and continues to be blown away by his accomplishments and gifts that life continues to bring him because he chooses to follow his dreams. Hence the title of this episode. Russ McGarry is a former stand-up comedian, and as I learned in this episode, a massage therapist as well. He has lived amongst the glamorous and not-so-glamorous and still manages to be a sensitive, down-to-earth guy. In this episode, he talks candidly about his successes and his failures, including the Nun Bun mockumentary, various television scripts, marriage, divorce, and so much more, all leading up to where he is and who he is today. He's a writer, a poet, a business owner, a husband, and a stepfather to a teenage boy. And of course, as is the case with many of my guests, he's had some life-changing run-ins with a therapist who, in his words, blew the barn door of his life wide open. You can learn more about Russ and his work in the show notes. You gotta follow the link for the nun bun. Trust me, it's funny. I enjoyed laughing with Russ and going on the storytelling ride with him, and I think you will too. So this is fun because you and I have never really gotten a chance to talk. I first heard about you from your life and business partner, Christine. And I remember she calling you her writer friend, Russ, for a while. Back in the day. day. Yes. And then one day, a couple years ago, I think, uh, she told me that you two were falling in love and you were moving to Portland. All of a sudden, she's in love with her writer friend, Russ. (laughs) Yeah, so her writer are. friend Russ was married. Her writer friend Russ was married when her writer friend Russ and she first met. So uh, mm-hmm. yes, there's. Or I was engaged at that time when we first first met. But then we communicated. Yeah, we could, kept in touch for over a decade, basically online. Thank God for online. Uh huh. And uh, just kind of follow each other's lives a little bit, and you know, and she's really funny. She's super creative and talented. So we would joke back and forth uh, on Facebook and. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of just kind of maintained, like you get, I don't know, uh, Facebook, you, you get a reminder of like, hey, here's, here's something you posted 10 years ago. And sometimes uh-huh. she'll be like, oh, here's a Russ McGarry commenting on something from 2012, uh, back when, you know, we were still just doing that back and forth. And we just really enjoyed joking around with each other. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, we stayed in touch. Uh, she, she has an idea, which she talked about in your interview with her about mm-hmm. uh, her memoirs and, uh, and she also had an idea for another story, which I don't know if she talked about uh, uh, for a pilot for a yes. show. And yeah. uh, that's the first time we got together with that because we traded massages before that, which sounds uh-huh. way more inappropriately intimate than it is was. But uh, I'm a massage therapist. And so she, we met when she was giving me a massage when I first moved to Portland okay. uh, by rando choice. It was where she worked was right around the corner from where I was living. Uh-huh. And um, they hooked us up. And, and uh, yeah, then we just did massage exchanges for about, I want to say, six months to a year. I forgot that part, that you were once a massage therapist. Of all the different lives you've lived, which it seems like many, 
You snuck in massage therapists. There there's a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, I started going to massage school when I was when I was working on a show for MTV in Los Angeles, and I decided I needed. At that point, I was thirty five, okay. going on thirty six, and I decided maybe working in TV wasn't going to last forever and ever and ever. So that's when I went to massage school at night while I was working as a TV writer producer during the day, which no one understood that life and neither do I, frankly. Very interesting. Um, as is the uh, trailer that you sent me for One Fall. I just want to start with that because that was really an interesting trailer for a documentary you did. Yeah. So One Fall is a uh, an hour, nine minute uh, documentary feature film that I made with uh, a friend of mine, a part, my creative partner, uh, over six years, um, mm-hmm. Carl uh, Fondelheit is his name. It was his original concept. I had moved here with my then wife and Portland uh, from Los Angeles. And it was like, I'm out of TV. As I said, massage classes. I'm not going to be working in television ever again. Entertainment. It's been a nice ride. I've been doing it for 16 years at that point. So we met Carl and his wife and he said, I'm a mailman here in Portland and I've been shooting this documentary and I don't know what I'm doing, but it's about Portland wrestling. And I was instantly like, I need to know more immediately. And my then wife also was uh, a producer, a TV producer. So we were both really peaked and we both worked in documentary style television. Uh, We we met working on a show called Behind the Music that was on VH1. I remember Um, that. It's a documentary biography show. Yeah. She worked on, uh, she always joked that she worked on Light Rock and I worked on Hard Rock. So I worked on like Metallica, Motley Crue, then on Weird Al Yankovic to mix things up. So he told he told the idea of this idea and he had the title one fall, which is a wrestling term, meaning you get one chance to be pinned down before the match is over. And, uh, it's a great, I was like, that's a great double, you know, meaning there, you know, you get one mm-hmm. chance and it's about wrestlers and tell me more about it. And so it's basically, it revolves around a husband and a wife who own a tow truck company in Portland. They also run a wrestling outfit on Saturday nights out of the garage where they park all the cars that they tow. So on Saturday nights, the wrestlers help them pull out all these cars. They set up chairs, probably could seat about 50 people, 60 people. There's a legit wrestling ring in this garage. And uh, so Saturday nights, they put on wrestling. And I think it was $5 to get in, $10 ringside. Dan the Man operating this whole thing. Uh, rabid fans, great, just colorful. Just the people that you really want to be the wrestlers are the ones that are the wrestlers in the movie. So there's just, it's a really good feel good die hard for your dreams, Mm -hmm. you know, push it to the limit. And we took about six years to shoot it um, and edit it. So it was our one fall also. So we raised money on Kickstarter back when you could do that without, you know, movie stars also trying to raise money for their Uh movies. And so, yeah, we kickstarted money and made this thing. And like I said, six years went by. Uh, we're incredibly happy with it. It's, mm-hmm. it's laughs, it's tears, it's, uh, there's big lessons, big moments. And in six years, you know, we spent with these people. The end of the movie is they go to break the Guinness Book World Record for number of hours consecutively wrestled, which is 72 hours. Um, so it's 76 hours of straight wrestling that three of us shot cameras for, I'd say, two-thirds of that time. Mm-hmm. You know, backstage wrestling, you know, all these things going wrong, all these things that were amazing. So it was a real, it was a real labor of love. We entered festivals. We won a documentary film festival, but, uh, but, you know, due to rights and clearance issues with some of the footage, we can't sell the film. So the, it would cost us thousands of dollars to see if we could even sell it at this point. So what year was this? This would have been 2009. Okay. Started in about 2009. Yeah. We wrapped things up about 2015. 
Okay. So he'd been shooting for about a year, six months prior to our even meeting. Yeah. And we're really proud of it. And it was an incredible experience. And, you know, showing this couple go through what they went through because of something they firmly believed in. And Mm -hmm. it provides entertainment and and hope and love and laughter and it's craziness and it's giant dudes in tights throwing each other around. I mean, what else do you want? (laughs) Yeah, it was interesting. But it does. It sounds like you said, like a die for your dreams type movie. And uh, I want to talk about your dreams that have gotten you up to this point in your life, because it seems like you... I don't know necessarily die hard for your dreams, but you definitely follow them. Absolutely. It's always been, you know, it's always been that way. And uh, anytime someone says to me, you know, I'm taking a massage class while working on an MTV show during the day, you know, 50, 60 hours a week, I I say, well, I want to learn massage at the sacrifice of my sanity, I'm sure. I'm Uh sure I was a mess for a while. But yeah, that's how I've always led my life. I mean, from my first career being a stand-up comic at the age of 16, which, uh, you know, I was in high school when I first started doing stand-up. Yeah. So that's that's what I want to ask you more about. So you started doing stand-up in adult comedy clubs when you were 16? Yeah. And then um, by the time that you were 19, you even dropped out of college to pursue that dream. And it seemed like it yes. was going quite well from what the little I know. Tell me about your stand-up comedy days. Here, here comes my age. So I started when I was 19. When I decided I was going to be a professional comedian, I had gone to college um, from Chicago. And I went to school outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is about an 90 minutes away mm-hmm. uh, from Chicago. And as we all know, Chicago, kind of a hub for comedy in general. I mean, some of the biggest names from SNL flying out of Chicago, out of the yeah. second city there and, you know, and stand-up comics also. It's a comedy town and I always grew up knowing that. So when I grew up in the late to mid-80s, that's when stand-up comedy's boom was like full force. You know, everything on HBO and Showtime was specials and I was in high yeah. school and I was in love with making people laugh anyway. And so here it was on 24 mm-hmm. seven, you know, it's like, you can just pop on your TV and there's Robin Williams doing some sort of, totally. horrible, you know, joke about his genitalia. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I thought I want to do that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I came up with five horrible minutes, I'm sure. So I just uh, started doing open mics in Milwaukee. I had a day job. I worked at a sandwich place during the day. My boss was amazing. She gave me the exact shifts I needed so that I could do stand-up four or five nights a week. I was going up four or five nights a week for about a year, probably six months, and I started getting paid a little bit. But yeah, I mean, Mm -hmm. it just caught my interest so much. I was good enough at it at 20, 19 years old. And at that time, there was a lot of work. And so... Lo and behold, I'm 20, almost 21 years old, and I moved back to Chicago and decided to be a full-time comedian, which uh, involved lots of odd jobs peppering in here and there. But uh, yeah, over the course of like a year, I started really getting a lot of work. And then all of a sudden, I was on on the road a lot, like Mm -hmm. probably 35, 40 weeks a year and going all place that you've never been. And uh, when people say, I'm not sure exactly where in Ohio this little town is, I say, (laughs) I know exactly where in Ohio that is because I've been there twice. Yeah, it was was great. Yeah, and it was was at that age, too. It was perfect. I'm 50 yeah. now. You could never get me to sit in a car that long by myself ever <laughs> at this point in my life. Right, right. It sounds like you enjoyed doing it and you were following at that time your dreams. What made you stop? It's so funny because I talked to Christine about this not that long ago and I've never really voiced it out loud. The reason I stopped was the, the bottom started coming out of the business part of it. So I came in at the very tail end of the late 80s boom and by the mid 90s, 
so I've been doing it for six years, the, the club, you know, the one night shows all over the place that let's put it this way. I wouldn't play St. Louis. I play East St. Louis. I mm. wouldn't play Chicago. I play the, you know, the club in the suburbs of Chicago. But so once in a while you'd land in a really nice club or I would land in a nice club. But for the most part, it was these little tiny one nighters in, you know, Muskegon, in mm-hmm. Wausau, in Springfield of any state. Uh, <laughs> and uh, there, you know, so when that started going away, I realized that there was no real future for me. And I realized also I was really interested in writing, mm-hmm. uh, comedy writing. So uh, at that point, my then girlfriend was like, I'm moving. She's from Nashville. So she's like, I have to move to Nashville. And I said, you know what? I'm 25. I'm done doing stand up. I'll just go with you because when you're 25, that is just something you think and say and then make happen if you can. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I did. That's where my television career actually started was in Nashville. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. And you had said that television writing had actually been your childhood dream. So you were going back to the original dream that you had, which was to write yeah. for television. And so how did you get into that? Um, I was working at a coffee house in Nashville. Uh, this is, and Nashville now is very metropolitan. Mm-hmm. Um, but back then it was still just music city and there was a lot of country music and CMT. Yes. I mean, it coincided. They created CMT while I was there. I had just started working in television. So uh-huh. I was in Nashville, a TV writer, and they needed a lot of people to write all their nonsense because uh, they were just trying to fill up a channel with time. Uh-huh. Uh, 24-hour television, man. Something's got to be on. I was living in there in Nashville working at Bongo, Bongo Java, and uh, I befriended a guy named Michael McNamara, um, who would, my unknowing at the time, become my personal uh, mentor, creating one fall, what I ta- which I just talked about. I would mm-hmm. not have been able to do that without this person landing in my life. He's a director. I always want to say he's about 12 to 14 years older than I am. I can never remember. So he was in his late 30s, early uh-huh. 40s, established. And he's from Boston. And he's kind of a hot guy. He kind of talks like this a little bit. And he's like, hi, ah, you're, uh, you're from Chicago, huh? And I was like, yeah, I'm from Chicago. He's like, hey, you're, you're a writer. You're a comedy writer. And I was like, I'm a, I'm a comedy writer. And uh, he's like, I need someone on this pilot that we're self-producing to, to punch up the scripts and do some voices for it. Would you, have you ever done any kind of performing? I'm like, well, I was a comedian for six years. So yeah. And before that, all through high school, I was in theater, um, musical theater, theater, did stand up also, as I said. So sure. And I did this pilot and he was like, this is great. And we fused a, a bond right through that pilot that while I was in Nashville, I wrote two music videos that were produced and directed by him. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of whom was Jeff Foxworthy. If you're familiar with yes. that, the comedy stylings of Jeff Foxworthy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Look him up. <laughs> 12 Redneck Days of Christmas. Yeah, And so he hired me for another pilot, sorry, another comedy pilot. And then he moved, he had lived in LA and he moved away and, my then wife and I were like, well, we were going to move to LA anyway. She was an actress. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're like, well, let's go. And we set, set a window of time. Um, before that, however, uh, was the nun bun, which I think I sent you. Mm-hmm. Some intro- yeah. So anyone listening needs to look that up. <laughs> That's a trip. Yeah. So in 1996, uh, a cinnamon bun was discovered at Bongo Java Coffee House, where I was working at the time, uh-huh. uh, that resembled the holy mother of Calcutta, Mother Teresa. Yes. It was discovered by my friend Todd Truly, who, if you look him up, he was on the show Nashville. He's kind of an actor you'd see around. And so he and I, here's Mm -hmm. a comedy writer and here's a funny guy. And we're both, you know, we both like making stuff. So here comes Michael McNamara and he goes, that cinnamon bun does look like Mother Teresa. We'd been showing it to regulars. And it was just a joke. Like we'd had on a plate and people would laugh. And so he's like, let's make a little little fake documentary about it. 
Like it's really <laughs> famous. Yeah. So um, we shot like a documentary over the course of like four hours one day with the regulars in the coffee house, taking it around. Todd pretended to be the manager of the bond. I was the guy with the microphone interviewing him. Uh, <laughs> it was all way over the top and stupid. It was eight minutes long. And um, we showed it at the coffee house to the regulars one night. We just had a big screening for it. And uh, everyone liked it. And the local newspaper, the Nashvilleian, ran a story on it. And they uh -huh. were like, this is really cute. It was coming towards Christmas. There wasn't a lot of news. So uh, here's a feel-good story. Mm -hmm. And uh, it hit the Nashvilleian. And we all went, oh, this is funny that it did that. And we all kind of looked at each other. The owner, Bob, and Todd and I went, all right, that was a neat little ride. Well, then the AP got a hold of it. And so now it hit the wire and it went worldwide, unbeknownst to us. So now CNN shows up with camera crews. Um, we did about 250 morning talk show interviews over the course of a week. There's three of us on three different phones with three different places around the world talking about this. We had a website set up. It was insane. It was absolutely and this is pre-YouTube, pre-anything yeah. that there's, we basically made that, this stupid documentary for like the random 29 people that were at this screening. And now all of a sudden, David Letterman's people are contacting us. And <laughs> Leno is mentioning it in his monologue. And it's appearing on sitcoms. And like the name, they're just dropping this mention constantly. And then the big contact was Mother Teresa contacted us. Or rather oh her lawyer gosh. did. Okay. Yeah, her lawyer. Wow. Mother Teresa had a lawyer <laughs> in Florida who sent us a cease and desist letter oh my God. to stop using her name, Mother Teresa Sinema. When you get a cease and desist letter from Mother Teresa, you kind of just start to think, we might be assholes if we don't cease and desist. So um, right. instead, copyrighted the word, that word nun bun, because mm -hmm. now everyone knew what it was anyway. So then it became the nun bun. And as of, I want to say, t almost 10 years ago, you can Google it. Um, it was stolen from the coffee house. It had been in there forever, and uh, oh. it is now missing. So someone broke into the coffee house and stole the nun nun. So what? That was my 15 <laughs> minutes of fame. I think that's, that's the one thing. <laughs> the one thing that carried me to stardom. Sometimes it's the oddest things, right? The things that happen oh, to us just shoot us out in different is. directions, and you have no idea where, where you're going to land. And my whole, my whole take with anything like that is to always yes and. Is always yes and. Like, well, here's this cinnamon bun. It looks like Mother Teresa. Let's make a documentary about it. Why? Well, why not? Because we can show it here. Okay, I yes anded that. Well, well then, then what's next? Well, now CNN wants to send a camera crew by. Okay, yes. Then what else can happen? Well, David Letterman wants to fly you out and have you on the show until he finds out that you guys know it's funny. Okay, yeah. And then what can happen? You know, just we just kept doing it with that. And that's been my whole, my whole life has been that. Is, it has been a series of yes ands for better or for worse. But if I don't take the risk, then, you know, it's a classic. If you don't vote, you can't complain. And it's like, well, if I don't try it, then I can't complain and bitch that I didn't get it. So why not right. try it and see what happens? Yes, I and love that. There's plenty of failures in there, true. There's yeah, but, you know, I mean, it's a cliche, but failure is part of success. So, I mean, it's just necessary. It's failure is part of life. Yeah, it's all a process. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's everything is a process. Totally. So speaking of processes, I want to go back to Nashville because you slipped in there that you were talking girlfriend, then you said wife. So somewhere in there, yes. you got married. I did. Okay. Keen. And in, in ear you have. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I met doing stand up uh, when okay. I was 20 and she was 26. Yeah, we were, we, we were together for 16 years total. I mean, we were together a long time. We 
went from Chicago to Nashville to LA mm-hmm. uh, until we split up and we still communicate. I mean, it's body. She lives in London. She works in animation in London, okay. which was a big dream of hers. You know, we were talked about that while we were married about living in London. She made that happen. It took her seven years. Nice. She got to be in the non-button video and everything. It was fantastic. <laughs> so it sounds like you guys had lots of fun together, but somewhere along the line, things started to break down. So I'm sure you learned a ton through the marriage. I'm sure you learned a ton through the divorce. Was that your first adventure in therapy? Uh, As an adult, yeah. As an adult, yeah. Um, I'd gone to therapy. Yeah, I'd gone to family therapy uh, maybe a handful of times. Mm -hmm. Uh, My folks went through a divorce when I was preteen-ish, 11, 12. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, as an adult, my then wife and I went randomly closed our eyes, stuck our finger in the phone book of who covers uh, marriage uh, therapy, mm-hmm. pointed in the phone book style, uh, found a therapist named David, and uh, he was the closest in proximity to us. Things worked out that things weren't going to work out eventually mm-hmm. uh, between the two of us, obviously. But I went into personal one-on-one therapy with David, mm-hmm. and it absolutely blasted open the barn doors and, you know, as I, as I said to him several times in therapy, just different incarnations, I was like, I was just living in this big, beautiful barn. And I was really getting used to this awesome barn. And I knew everything was. And like the, the machines need to be cleaned on this day. And the cows have to be fed like this. And sometimes this happens. But there's always this door at the end of the barn. And I'm always like, well, I don't need to go check that out at all. And then one day I went to therapy and I saw some cracks in that door. And all of a sudden I started picking at those cracks. And all of a sudden I realized oh, there's no door here. And oh, shit. Now I have all of this to think about too. Um, (laughs) And it was like the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It was an amazing moment, amazing several weeks of therapy. I went once a week uh, for, my God, probably six, eight months and then continued, did a couple men's groups uh, just because he thought that would be good for me. And I saw Mm -hmm. through my personal therapy how much I needed that. It was was like existential awakening is a very weak two-sentence phrase. (laughs) <laughs> well, you had said that it actually helped make you a deeper storyteller. I'm sure it helped you in your career as a writer. Uh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Perspective, paradigm shift, just mm-hmm. even that a little subtle one as someone who's a creative is just like a brand new set of tools. And, um, and it's an endless chest. Once you realize that you can start tapping into, or I started realizing that, you know, I can tap into these things. Mm-hmm. Very easily. I'm an incredibly sensitive person. Just ask Christine. She'll tell you. Um, she has told me and, that. <laughs> and, not in a, and not in a whole, like, hey, I wanted to watch Seinfeld reruns and you wanted to watch Cheers reruns. But I'm but I'm a very, by all accounts, a very sensitive person. So it's like drawing those things into comedy. It's a very delicate thing. And I, I feel like I've really flexed that muscle in the past, good God, 15 years now, mm-hmm. uh, enough that I've really worked that muscle out where I really can find little places to put a humor, humor in a very serious situation and, and not in a steam release. We need humor here, but it's more of a sweet humor. I don't know. It's, it's, it depends on the project, but I definitely feel this part of me that I didn't know was there um, up until 15 years ago. And that was that, that barn door disappeared. Yeah. So to speak. Yeah. So much has changed for you since the divorce, since opening the barn door or scratching it open. Um, What got you to Portland besides Christine? Where were you at from that divorce and all that healing and that growing? And what got you to just go, I I love this woman and I'm taking a chance and moving to Portland. Yeah. Well, here comes another, another, gee, how many lives have I led? Uh But um, after that divorce from my 
my first wife and I say first wife because here comes a second one and it's not mm-hmm. Christine. Okay. Um, I started dating someone else and um, this is an old friend of mine. I've known her for about eight years previously to that. We'd hung out, you know, here and there, but we worked together a lot at MTV and in different shows. And um, so we really, really got along very well. And so we started dating and about a year and a half into that, we're the same age, around 37. It was like, I think it's time to get the hell out of Los Angeles, right? Because this place is going to kill us before we're 50. And so, you know, she had worked on a show that shoots in Portland and I had been to the Pacific Northwest before, but never to Portland. We went to Seattle, which I'd been there many times, to Chicago uh, to see about maybe moving there. And uh, we just really loved Portland a lot. We moved in here into Portland together, Mm -hmm. separately and then together to Portland. Uh, But then I started going back and forth to Los Angeles for work pretty much within the first two years. I was getting hired on shows again, um, which were wonderful. And they were absolutely would not do it over again were it not for me to pay more attention to the fact that this was separating two people that were in a union together. Yeah. And, uh, you know, over the course of... So, you know, several years of doing that eventually eroded, you know, these, the, that bond, I mm-hmm. mean, to, to oversimplify something, which I am. And it was very sad and very hard. And I made some really, you know, bad, bold choices. I went back to Los Angeles to try and find work. Lots of jobs were just dried up. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot there anyway. So I just decided I'm going to take a chunk of time. And I had a little bit of money coming in from a show I'd written on. And I was like, I'm just going to pop myself out of my life for the first time in my entire life. As you've heard, yeah, I do, I do everything that I set out to in this time. I said, I have got to hit the brakes and get the hell off of my, my comfort level, which seems uncomfortable to most people. But my comfort level is to just, you know, kind of cruise into these things and mm-hmm. just put myself neck deep in them. And so I took six or seven months of just unliving, which was mm-hmm. the greatest vacation I've taken from me in my life. It was amazing. <laughs> uh, I lived in Western Massachusetts for a couple months with a friend of mine and worked at his bar uh, and stayed with him and helped, mm-hmm. you know, kind of helped with his kids a little bit. I went back to Chicago. Um, I helped my mom out. She was having some health issues for, for about four weeks. Okay. And in that time, I reconnected with Christine via online. Yeah. Again, uh, we just picked up yep. where we left off. Yeah. And, uh, and then there we were two and a half, three years ago or two and a half years ago. So what seemed probably at the time when that second marriage was breaking up is something that was really sad. It, it was again, something that happened in your life. It just shot you off in a different direction. You checked out of your life. <laughs> which is pretty cool. I think if anyone gets an opportunity to do something like that, if you're spinning around and things just Highly recommend. seem kind of out of control. Highly recommend if, it. Yeah. Any, even if it's just for a week, you did it for how long? Six months? Uh, about seven, okay. yeah, six, seven months. But I mean, it, it is like, it's a simple, I mean, doing something that dramatic, you know, when people say it's as simple as t- driving home from work a different way than you normally mm-hmm. drive home helps jostle the patterns in your brains, those neural pathways that are so like, this is what happens every time. And if you take two left turns and a right turn instead of whatever the solution to that math equation I just made up would be, you know, it it gives you new perspective. And so what I did was I just went full reset button and went, okay, if I'm going to dive myself into this, I'm really going to put myself into this. Mm -hmm. And I want, and the people that emerged from my past were just amazing. I mean, I I wound up staying, I went to North Carolina for four days with one of my best friends from high school. Uh, He works, he works for a winery. So he just drove around all over North Carolina together while he just dropped in and was like charming business salesman, but it was like being in high school again. And yeah. Then I, you know, another old high school friend, I spent four days with him. And then my high school theater friends all got together and we had dinner. And it was just like, 
I didn't plan any of it. It all just started happening and escalating. And that's when I started to feel back to me, back to one and back yeah. to settled. And within, I'd say two weeks, three weeks, four weeks of that, Christine and I were in touch. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, you totally hit reset on your life. So now you yeah. and Christine are living in Portland and mm -hmm. uh, you had what seems like kind of an old fashioned courtship, lots of romance, poetry writing. Yes. It's just beautiful. Lots. And now <laughs> you guys actually, you have a preschool because Christine had just started that when you guys started communicating right. again. And you have a preschool that not only survived the pandemic, but you guys are have become such an awesome business team that you're growing in leaps and mm -hmm. bounds, it seems like, which is pretty cool. So that's happening. That's another, I'm sure it was never your dream to own a preschool, but. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, no, I didn't know. I didn't know that it, people owned preschools. I just thought they just happened. Right. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I came out. I came out of two marriages at fifty years old, right now, mm -hmm. with no children of my own. Uh, going into the preschool, but when Christine was describing it to me, when we were catching up and sending all of those love poems uh -huh. daily, texting and calling each other constantly. I was in Chicago. She was in Portland, uh, trying to figure out. You know, is this something? What is this? And uh, but yeah, so she told me about the preschool and then the whole concept behind what she wanted to do small class sizes, uh, you know, the ratio is super low for teachers to students and more open play based than anything else. And, you know, just helping children connect with each other on their rawest levels. And, you know, the way she was describing it, I'm like, this is beautiful. This sounds like kind of a little bit how I was raised. Um, my, my younger sister is six and a half years younger than I am. And my mother was a teacher. So I was oh, okay. an only child for six and a half years. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I was given a lot of open-ended play. I asked, I've asked my mother, is like, is the, would you call it that back then? And she said, yes, I would, you would have your toys out. You would be, you'd go from toy to toy without any guidance to tie two thoughts together. It does sound familiar that that tracks completely up until my life at this point, uh, open-ended play. It's like, see what happens. What does this lead to next? That's our preschool. That's our concept. It's who Christine has been her entire life, uh -huh. which really helps. Uh, and, you know, she's incredibly smart, incredibly driven and knows what she's doing. She knows the bones of this business. Like I could never even, there could never be enough preschool openings for dummies books made to <laughs> fill that she's just a wealth of knowledge. Yeah. And so be, us, both of us, she's an artist. We're both creative and, mm -hmm. you know, together, you know, we, we play with the children, but in a way where we're not, we're not interacting with them on a childlike level. We're interacting with them with an adult lead mm -hmm. more than anything else. And they follow suit. They love having that safety of seeing two adults who are playful and silly and mm -hmm. we both play ukulele. We both sing. Um, I always joke about, do you ready for the greatest show on earth? Like we always laugh about it. Like these kids show up and it's like, we cook, we entertain, we nurture, we teach, we interact. It's like a circus in here every day. And there's always something new going on. Having come from the world of comedy and working in television, it's just nice to be working with children again. Yeah. Boom. Jokes yeah. are fun. It's just a different universe. Uh -huh. So, I mean, I, I cherish everything that I've done. In fact, I do have pitches lined up to pitch yeah. pilot. So it's like part of my life, but this uh -huh. is 100%. I'm just more of me than I could have ever have gathered to know about myself. I mean, I've learned so much working with children and just in a way that I would hear my friends say that. And I'd be like, oh, that's interesting about my, my kid teaches me more than I ever learned in high school, blank, mm -hmm. college, blank, whatever. And it's like, nope, we got eight, eight of these kids that are just just like we are just what we are and we have no agenda well and not only are you working with little children 
on a regular basis, but you have a stepson now, yes. a teenage stepson. A very large, <laughs> a very large child, yes. I'm five, six feet. He's about six, two and a half. He's 16, Jethro. Wow. Uh-huh. And, uh, as I as I refer to him, uh, Jay Money or uh, Young Jethro, um, as he towers above me. But uh, he's great. He's a teenager, you know, and it's mm-hmm. really fascinating to see. He's incredibly creative. He's very funny. He's funny in the bones. I mean, he pitches me joke ideas constantly. He'll stick his head in the room and be like, "Hey, what about this?" And I'm like, "Hey, ha But it's it's been interesting to see an even keeled, really together kid during all of this COVID, and to hear like a lot of teens having problems and having issues with not, you know, with their parents. And he's just been just a really sweet, patient, understanding guy. And I can't believe I'm lucky enough to even have this involvement in these little past, you know, I'll have had him as my stuff's kid for four years and then he'll be 18. So it's kind of crazy. I got to come in at the tail end and kind of help usher him into joyous nightmare that is adult life. Right, right. Beautiful. So what has it been like for you to be a stepdad? Just be thrown into dad role. Christine and I threw ourselves into this relationship, business mm-hmm. and stepdad, you know, co-partnering Jethro, yeah. um, who I'd met several times when he was young, but he has no memory of me. You know, he's like four. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's very hard to describe like what I've gained from it because I really feel like of all the things that COVID has given me in this life, strangely enough, it's a, it's a greater bond. The three of us have bonded so strongly that now I see him modeling himself a little bit after me. I'm a, I'm a runner. You probably don't know this part, but I've no. run ultra marathons. So okay. like crazy racing. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's known that for a long time. And so I took him to a running store a couple of weeks ago. He was interested in running, got him a pair of running shoes and um, it's just kind of wild to look at this guy and, you know, he's like, he's coming in, he's pitching me jokes and he's like, I want to go on a run. And I'm like, that sounds a lot like someone I know. It's just added a whole new element to my life that I didn't know was missing. Do you feel the pressure of being a role model? In a, in a sense, but not in a negative way. I okay. feel like I see... Like honored. Yeah, honored, yes. Yeah, I see the importance and I and I respect the importance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've caught myself a couple of times being like, that is not the best way to communicate that. So next time, that's not how I'm going to communicate that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, talk about, talk about a reality check. I mean, the, the responsibility is all right there in your hands. So I, you better not drop this, this beautiful glass thing that Christine, by the way, has been forging for 14 years before right. you showed up. So don't drop it, dum-dum. <laughs> Yeah, so a little bit of pressure. Yeah, I'm all about pressure, I guess. Yeah, you know, pressure's not bad. Keeps you motivated. Keeps you motivated. Yeah, exactly, right. (laughs) So I am interested and curious because I've heard from Christine the same thing about this last year, that you guys have gotten just really, really close and things have been Mm. going pretty well for your family life. Do you know why? What are some of your secrets? <laughs> Gosh, well, am I ready to reveal this uh, on air? I don't know. No, um, <laughs> I think it really just has to do with, I'll say Christine and Christine's and my, mm-hmm. but also Jethro's uh, on, on the level a 16-year-old can be of being present and being very aware of what's really going on, not reacting we all struggle with it. And of course, there's been a couple of crazy ass meltdowns where it's just like, you know, what the hell was that? Was a statement said out loud by one of the parties involved. And the other one said, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, so we've, we've, we're humans, but um, it's really just a, a real present understanding of what is very much reality and also very, very lighthearted. Everything is, there's lots of music. There's lots, I, I, 
for the life of me, can't imagine Jethro thought he'd hear some dude wandering around his house singing as much as he's had the past, you know, over a couple of years. There's always something going on. There's, you know, inside jokes that are constantly being tossed around. And I think the sensibility of like, hey, we can't take all of this too seriously because you can take it too seriously if you'd like. Um, I don't recommend that. You know, there's a breaking point for everybody. So I think that is probably the number one thing is, is that love and levity and understanding that we're in this together and we've got each other's backs and like, let's just continue doing that. So yeah. it's been, but it's, you know, for a 16 year old to step up to the plate, it's huge. Well, it sounds like he's had a lot of support from both you and Christine for sure. So this kind of goes into what your philosophy is then from This Is Final Tap, which honestly... I've never seen kind of embarrassing really? because yeah, I've actually yeah. never watched it. Or I could bore you for hours. <laughs> well, it sounds like you love it. And so your philosophy comes from that and it's <laughs> have a good time all the time. Um, it's my, it's my go-to when people ask me for my philosophy, which is if you're not familiar with this is spinal tap, I highly recommend watching it. It's the first true mockumentary where it was the first time anyone really ever did a fake documentary about something that's not really going on, but actually is a very talented group of musicians who are very talented comedy writers who you will recognize their names, if not their faces, uh-huh. um, from everything from the 70s and 80s uh, and 90s and or 2000s. But uh, yes, yeah, so at the very end, the director who's directing the mockumentary says, what is your philosophy? And one of the side characters, who's like a tertiary character, says, have a good time all the time. That's mm-hmm. my philosophy. And I remember thinking that's such an easy knee-jerk, stupid thing to say back. But really, it kind of does fit my mindset is, well, I mean, if you've got to try to do something all the time, you might as well try to have a good time all the time. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not always going to be the greatest time. You know, I hate saying make best with what you've got handed to you, but at the end of the day, that's all you can do. Or you can complain a whole lot right. about how you don't like it. And right. That's your two options. Yeah, yeah. and you can change it to make it a good time or you can mm-hmm. sit and just wallow. Yeah. I choose to have a good time. And I think too. <laughs> the key to that, like I said before, it does, it does, you don't need to refocus if you're familiar with your phone now, but if you're familiar with focusing a camera, it doesn't take twisting the lens very far to readjust focus. And mm-hmm. you can just tick it just a little bit in your own head. And if it just gets you a little bit out of banging your head against the wall for five minutes, then You've got five minutes of not doing that. Yeah, I like that. So you are still, like you said, working on your career as a writer. Give me a little teaser. Uh, What's going on? (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Some coming attractions to the life of me. Oh, boy. Um, Well, the pitch that I was talking about is, uh, without divulging too much, it's an animated pitch. uh, This is going to sound vaguely familiar. A comedian in the year 1987. Uh Um, (laughs) Uh-huh. However, he's, he's in his mid-50s, and he's been doing it for about 23 years, and it looks like that's all he's ever going to do with, with the rest of his life. And he's, he's, but he's funny and ahead of his time, but he's also his own worst enemy. So it's, it's the further adventures. His name's Eddie Dunstan, and it's a character I've had in my head for about 17 years. Mm-hmm. And my creative partner, uh, who's an amazing animator, illustrator, Kevin uh, Reynolds, we've been collaborating for about 12 years together. And so we finally said, let's just make it. And um, I have a friend of mine who's a relatively well-known stand-up comic who's doing the voice of the character. Uh, those are the things I can't really talk about quite yeah. yet. But, um, but yeah, so we have pitches lined up with one very big person that if I said their name out loud, everyone would know, but I can't. Um, <laughs> and then a couple other smaller production companies. That started in September, really, like okay. hunkering down. And then we started production in January. And here it is beginning of April. And we're 
basically done as of today or tomorrow, probably. So then we start pitching it. Congratulations. Um, yeah. So that's exciting. That. And then, yeah, that's, we'll see what happens. I've pitched a million, I've pitched a million and sold one. So we'll see uh, how this one goes. <laughs> I just love how you keep trying though. That's so good. That's very inspirational. Yeah. Thank you. And you just have to keep on trying and that's what you keep doing. That's yeah. Great. And it's, it's, and it, it's, it stops and starts, but it's, you know, it's habitual and it, I hate everything about it. But it's true. It's like you have to just keep doing it. It's terrible. It's the worst truth in the world. I hate that that's the man behind the curtain. But he really is just standing there going like, just keep trying. There's no other lesson out there. Um, Artistically, with your family, you know, thematically, what we've been talking about, it all comes down to just put your heart into it and just keep trying. And you'll absolutely be blown away by what you can accomplish. Yeah. Then I'm going to put that on a t-shirt and sell it on your website. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, and there's your quote. Thank Boom. you. Thank you for that. <laughs> hey, awesome. <laughs> Russ, I have loved that I've gotten to get to know you on my podcast. Cause then when we uh-huh. actually get to hang out someday, we'll have more to chat about. I can learn about you. <laughs> you know, you've done podcasts before. Maybe we'll have to switch it up. Thanks for listening to my podcast, The Dragonfly Connection. If you have your own inspiring story that you would like to share, please go to my Instagram account at the Dragonfly Mama. Send me a direct message and we will set it up to chat. In the meantime, have a wonderful week and we'll be back with a new episode next Wednesday.